Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Game Time. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and use code GOODSEATS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account, redeem the code GOODSEATS for $20 off. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Download Game Time today. And now, here's our show. It's almost like they wrote us off before we even thrown the first pitch. You weren't going to break us. We, we were going down to the last breath. We have to kill somebody second base and break their legs? Yes, we want to. We're going to fight. There we go. He's on. I just remember getting out there and going, good God, these guys are huge. This club suddenly, we thought, we had a chance to beat them. We just fighting, fighting, fighting with the big boys. We just a bunch of kids. One player over there, regular player, back in home. I and someone in the left field upper deck hung a massive jock off the upper deck. And it had his name on it. The excitement at Sox Park, it was just like crazy. People would have, you know, like... 10 to 15 beers. The onions and all that stuff, grilling. It just, it's just nuts. And of course, the Nancy on the organ. There's something special about going in. As you'd walk through the, from the clubhouse down through the through the tunnel into the dugout and the, the water seeping in through the walls, you know, just because it was underground. Playing there was like, oh my God, see the people around you. When you're playing baseball in a place that you know is special, you didn't take that kind of stuff for granted. People didn't leave the park. They just wanted to stay there and absorb the sights and the smells. Welcome to Comiskey. Check your troubles at the gate. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well now, greetings and salutations, everybody. How are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is, of course, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. We know you have a zillion and a half choices in podcast land. So we are honored and ecstatic uh, that you would uh, find us amidst all of that and uh, and join us for a few minutes. So thank you so very much. Uh, this week, our guest is the one, the only Matt Flesh, and he, the director, the producer, and uh, originator of the awesome, absolutely awesome three-part documentary that is now available on YouTube. Um, you can search it up at Last Comiskey think uh, on YouTube, it's actually at Last Comiskey 1990. Uh, and you will find uh, the three-part series devoted to the story of the 1990 White Sox at Comiskey Park. Yeah, it's free. You can see it now and uh, stream it to your heart's desire. It is a three-part documentary that is uh, uh, devoted to ostensibly the last season played at Comiskey Park. Uh, its final game uh, with the uh, Chicago White Sox, the chief inhabitants of said park, uh, which was on September 30th, 1990. Uh, but you will see through interviews with players and vendors and the media and security guards and uh, fans and, and, and Chicagoans and others video, home video of the old ballpark, uh, the various nooks and crannies and characters that inhabited uh, said Comiskey Park. And it's not just a, a recount of uh, some of the, the more memorable moments of that 1990 baseball season with the Chicago White Sox, but also uh, interesting uh, moments that harken back to uh, some of the uh, the park's uh, overall history. Uh, yes, disco demolition, for example, and a little bit of a featurette into the uh, uh, the wacky and memorable vendors that uh, that made uh, the experience of going to the ballpark uh, on the south side, that that much more memorable. Um, it is a wonderful uh, and extremely well done, surprisingly well done, uh, reminiscence about uh, the grand old ballpark known as Comiskey. I, why do I say surprising? Only because 
Uh, Matt is not, and he was the first to tell you, a professional documentarian. Uh, he knew very little about video production and how to put something like this together. But I must tell you, I was uh, thoroughly impressed. It is a chock full of of great interviews uh, with, with key members uh, of this story. Nancy Faust, a, a great example of such. Uh, she, the longtime uh, organist uh, for the old Comiskey Park and the and the White Sox and and even into the new park for many years, but also just these tremendous uh, home movies uh, that uh, literally are rich and full and vibrant and colorful uh, of uh, of those memories, uh, not only of the last season but uh, of years prior. Uh, and this is the conversation this week, our discussion with Matt Flash, the. Uh, uh, the director, the producer, the originator of this wonderful three-part series available on YouTube called Last Comiskey. Uh, and uh, you will absolutely find it fascinating, both conversation as well as the video. Um, let's see a couple of quick things here. As we record this in the latter part of uh, April, if you're listening to this uh, before, uh, let's say May 13th, Saturday, May 13th, and you happen to be uh, living in or will be in visiting the uh, Chicago metropolitan area, uh, you can actually see uh, this uh, last Comiskey documentary uh, in person uh, and uh, see a screening uh, of various portions of this film, including also a Q&A featuring some very important people who are part of this documentary and featured. Uh, Nancy Faust, the White Sox organist uh, for uh, almost 30 years. Uh Don Paul, a, a former White Sox pitcher. Wayne Edwards, a former White Sox pitcher. A Tom Scherer, who's a longtime Chicago sportscaster and very much involved in some of the background production of this. And of course, Matt Flesh, the producer director of this fine documentary, Last Comiskey. This event will be on uh, May, th <clears throat> excuse me, May thirteenth. He says uh, at the uh, prom uh, promontory how do you say that promontory promontory there you go 5311 south lake park avenue uh, uh west in chicago down in the uh, hyde park area there you can find out more about it uh by going to epilepsysurgerialliance.org the uh, uh the organization that will benefit for all the uh, the revenue from this event. It's a $25 donation, uh, and the Epilepsy Surgery Alliance uh, is a nonprofit organization that enhances uh, the lives of children who need uh, neurosurgery to treat uh, medication-resistant uh, epilepsy. And again, epilepsysurgerialliance.org. Again, it's $25. Bucks. Uh, get your tickets. And again, it's on uh, May 13th at the Promontory. There you go, 5311 South Lake Park Avenue West in Chicago. That's Hyde Park. Uh, and uh, I, my hope is that I will be able to join. I think it kicks off at uh, 11 a.m. local time. Uh, it should be a fun time. And um, uh, if you can't get to that and uh, for a great cause, uh, by all means, check out the documentary. And perhaps you could even uh, uh, electronically send uh, the Epilepsy Surgery Alliance some donational goodness uh, if you can't make it in person. Uh, and again, uh, the video uh, can be found on YouTube. And uh, again, at last, excuse me, last Comiskey, the official address on YouTube is last at last Comiskey 1990 at last Comiskey 1990. Um, all right. So there you go. Uh, all kinds of great reasons to, to watch this film, but perhaps maybe you want to sit back, relax and enjoy this conversation uh, with Matt Flesh that we had just about a week back. Uh, as we record this, and um, you will learn as to why you uh, must seek out this film. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, you will uh, find it as uh, just tremendously done and, uh, and exciting and uh, uh, educational as I did. So please sit back and enjoy this conversation we have with Matt. Uh, as always, we uh, encourage you to enjoy. Oftentimes a documentary right? Whether it's sports or, or otherwise. And I'm an aficionado, right? So I kind of know what I speak because it's kind of like the go-to genre that I that I view. When it comes to these like kind of sports histories and stuff, right? There's, there's one of two ways these things can go, right? Number one is like big budget, um, uh, you know, uh, well photographed, uh, top tier talent, uh, rare, hard to find interviews, 
and a budget that, you know, gets all kinds of music and, and film clips and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, with rights and all that. Or it's the proverbial labor of love. Somebody knows how to do, you know, using an edit suite and that kind of stuff. And it's it may be OK. Right. It doesn't much have a story. There's no drama. You, you can tell it's not professionally done. It's more of a, a fanboy kind of thing. But yours is not that. And I, I feared that it would fall into that category when I first heard the story about you uh, literally creating this out of uh, with zero budget. And I was more than pleasantly surprised because it feels very professional, but it clearly was not the case now, was it? Yeah, that's well, that's awesome to hear. <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for saying that. Yeah. And I, I think like, you know, it's gotten a pretty good response. Like a lot of people have seemed to have watched it, but I. I think that might hold some people back. Like, ah, I'm not going to spend my time on this. It's like a, it's like a fan fiction kind of thing. And um, which that there's a lot of great stuff done that way. T totally awesome stuff. But um, yeah, we were going to try and make it as professional as we could make it like something that we could be really, really proud of, um, you know, and, and we were, you know, wanted to have it a good narrative flow. We wanted it to be fun. We wanted it not to meander too much. So anyway, it's, it's awesome to hear you say that. Uh, that that's uh, that's what we were going for, and it's it's great to hear that. <laughs> well, look, I'm I'm not blowing smoke because uh, I you know I'm I'm not from the Chicago area originally. I married into a Cub loving family, but I've been yeah. to more White Sox games than I have Cub games. Uh, I think my wife knows that, but um, I, I want to hear sort of the background story of all of this because making documentaries is not your day job by any stretch. Right. Right. Tell me how the whole idea, the story, comes together. And then maybe we'll get into some of the mechanics of it uh, after that. Sounds good. So are we going recording and all that? We are absolutely going, of course. All right. Yeah. So it all started out with COVID and my brother, Mike and I were, you know, we're big Bulls fans. We're Chicago fans. And we were just so excited for that last dance documentary. Uh, love those Bulls teams as so many Chicago fans do and watched that. And as you recall, there was no other sports at that time. So I think the viewership was incredible. And I had been waiting for that for, you know, two years or something like that. And after that, it was, you know, kind of got inspired. My brother, Mike, and I have always done creative stuff, you know, but more of just things to amuse each other um, or, our, you know, our, our nephews and my daughter, like making funny videos and things. Um, so, but nothing serious. And so, you know, we thought we were thinking after the last dance, like, what are some of the other, you know, Chicago stories? And the first one that came immediately to mind for me is the 1990 White Sox, because they were such a fun team and playing out that last year at old Comiskey park, which is by far my favorite baseball stadium of all time. You know, I was 15 that last year. And from that point to now, I still like will draw the upper decks and things like that when I'm bored in a meeting or something like that. So it just stuck with me. Um, but the way the way we really got going is we we made shorter videos that my brother Mike narrated about that season. And we put them on YouTube and they got a few thousand hits. But, you know, through putting those out there, we got some attention. Nancy Faust reached out to us with a direct message on Twitter saying how much she liked it. Ozzy Guillen retweeted a few things we did and appreciated what we were doing. And I think that sort of opened the door for us to start to get these interviews, some in person, some on Zoom. And at first we were just thinking, let's put, let's put out like a 15, 20 minute video on YouTube that's different people from in and around the park with their memories of what it was like at old Comiskey park. But then when we started getting, you know, Dan Evans, who is the assistant GM of that team and Nancy Faust and Ozzy Guillen, and then we were able to get Jack McDowell. And, and then it started to take shape where we realized we really had something. And so we did all the interviews. I mean, you know what, because of COVID so many people learned how to do zoom that it opened up the door for a lot of this that I think I'm not sure it would have been possible prior. And, you know, asking Bobby Thigpen or Scott Roditsky for 20 minutes on a Zoom to remember 1990 during COVID, they were up for it. And two years prior, they probably wouldn't even know how to do Zoom. And there's no way we're going to their house, right? We have no resume. That's not going to happen. So all that, that stuff kind of came together and it snowballed from there. And, it, and three years later, it turned into what we put out. 
Well, you also had a captive audience, which is also sort of a, a fortunate thing, too. So you didn't need even to do the travel, even if you could do it, right? Because there really wasn't anything else for people to be doing. And I guess, you know, you always reminisce about when times were better, I guess, is probably certainly what occupied a lot of people's minds at that time. And I'm sure they welcomed uh, the, the the tap on the shoulder to talk about that stuff. Yeah, it's definitely true. And, and with the Zoom at one point, you know, I was a little worried that because we started out by asking people to just like take their phone or their computer and we gave them some questions and they just answered the questions and then they would send it the video to us with them telling us their memories. And that was working out OK. Um, but we ran into some issues with that, with just file size and trying to explain Dropbox. So we started doing the StreamYard and the Zoom and I was, you know, concerned in the beginning that the quality just would be really spotty and and staticky, and we'd run into all kinds of issues. And we had some of that, but I give a lot of credit. We actually worked with a color person who's like a very Chicago renowned and beyond renowned colorist who made the Zoom videos and the Streamyard videos look much better than they had any business looking. And then our sound person um, did an amazing job of, you know, bringing out the best in the Zoom sound. And then also, you know, we had all these different layers of crowd noise and and ambience and the, Nancy Faust on the organ and blending that all together. So while Mike and I edited this whole thing in Premiere Pro, we did get some help on the sound and the color, which, um, you know, made all the difference, especially the sound. You know, having that sound and that color was really key. Well, how, how much did you know about Premiere Pro and, and, and editing in general? Very little. I mean, I, I think once you get into Premiere Pro, it, it becomes fairly intuitive. Uh, it's just kind of, it's just trial and error. And I, I love that kind of stuff. Like I love figuring out a new program and, you know, searching out how to do this or that. And one of the things that, you know, we set out right from the beginning is we didn't want to get too crazy with like graphics and animations. We really wanted to keep it pretty simple with, with the images and some split screen. Um, and so Premiere Pro is pretty intuitive. We just, you just learned it over time and it, it you know, it, it didn't take that long to learn. You just got to stick with it. All right. So the interviews, those are, that sounds pretty straightforward and almost, um, uh, by happenstance, luckily, uh, you know, a captive audience, people learning how to use Zoom, you know, educating themselves by uh, uh, separately, maybe for work and all that kind of stuff. But where and how did you procure uh, the game footage and the ancillary uh, broadcast footage and that kind of stuff? Looks like there's a lot of um, home movies, home video and or otherwise less than shall we say professionally aired stuff that you yeah uh, throughout the show yeah it's one of my favorite parts of doing this is uh we started putting out we you know calling out on twitter asking people if they had any video any home video that they took of the old ballpark or if they had any pictures and things like that and i really say it, this is a collaboration among many Sox fans who answered the call and they dug into their closet or their attic and found that old VHS tape. There's a, uh, there's a, uh, Andy Frayne usher supervisor who's in the documentary, John Brudnick. And he reached out on Twitter from one of those, uh, posts that we made. And he found a video that he took, uh, last month at old Comiskey. He took the day off, brought his video camera in and just walked around the entire park and he got video of everything. So he got video, um, in the Andy Frayne room that you'll see, uh, interviewing all like the, the concourse and the cavernous, you know, tunnels underneath the stadium and all kinds of different vantage points from the upper deck and the lower deck, just incredibly cool stuff. And to me, like perhaps my favorite element of this is that home video footage that we got. And then other people, um, in 1990 just recorded off their TV highlights or ga entire games and they sent that to us. So that's, that's how we were able to get a lot of the game footage that otherwise, you know, might've been lost forever. Uh, some really great fans just archived it. Mark Liptak is a white Sox historian. He, you know, he videotaped highlights from the entire 1990 season. He sent us that. So, you know, that was just really cool is getting these home videos and some of that recorded video from fans who contributed it. And without, without that stuff, this wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have been nearly uh, as interesting as it turned out. Um, you know, having all that footage was just really, really great. Well, you also didn't have to get in that morass of 
uh, certainly not music, but uh, just the uh, rights, you know, uh, of actual footage from Major League Baseball, the White Sox, or, you know, I, it sounds like that could easily, I mean, I know that having sort of been around documentary production a little bit, uh, yeah. being a news guy and stuff, that, that can bust a budget before you even know what the word budget means. That was the big, that was the big hesitation and concern and still is to some, some degree. So we put all this on YouTube and there you'll see on YouTube more and more major league baseball and other professional sports are not cracking down nearly as much as they used to with content that's put out. And if, I mean, last Comiskey is a, is basically it's a big, you know, promotion for baseball and why baseball is great and why being a fan is great. And so it's, it's really, you know, it's promoting the game. And when you put stuff out on YouTube, the, what MLB does most of the time, and they've done with this documentary is they just claim the content so that they can, as opposed to striking it and taking it down, they claim the content. So any money that we would make, and it's, I mean, minimal a hundred thousand views on part one is, is a lot and it's great. It's more than we expected, but in the grand scheme of YouTube, it's, you know, it's not much. But, you know, Major League Baseball claims that. So, the you know, fan-made content, they can make money off themselves. So it's it, it, it creates that opportunity. But to your point, like if we decided to go with like trying to put this out on a bigger network, it, then we would have probably got more tied up in legalities and rights and things like that. But we, we haven't had any problems and it's been out over a month. So <laughs> we'll uh, hope it continues to stay available on YouTube for free for people to enjoy. Well, all right, let's talk a little bit about the subject at hand for sure, because um, I, I, am, I must admit uh, you you kind of uh, kind of really threaded the needle with this, because while you are hanging your hat mostly on the frame of the 1990 final season in the park um, and using that sort of as the backdrop, um, you do. And this is what I was very much looking out for is. You know, how how far how otherwise do you get into the Comiskey story? Because that's a huge and much larger Pandora's box of stuff. Right. I mean, you you can't talk about the go go socks and the disco demolition and and all the different sort of things and stuff. Right. Where, um, you know, you're not getting too sort of far afield, shall we say. Um, I, I must tell you, you've done a really good job because not only do you kind of use the 90 season as uh as i guess the thread or the narrative but it use it conveniently maybe luckily perhaps by some of the footage that you got um to kind of dip in and then dip back out of maybe something more elemental about the park so for example uh the, the aforementioned disco demolition right i mean hard not to understand uh that little blip in in comiskey park history because most people generally even if they're not baseball fans know that too I could see you would easily want to ignore or pass right over that because it's the 1990 season. It's the last part of the Comiskey. But you actually speak to it with, you know, enough deference and enough uh, uh, depth yet, you know, uh, it, it, you cul-de-sac it very quickly and it goes right back into the narrative. Um, was that on purpose? The, the vendors that you talk about, right? There's lots of other little tangents that you sort of go into, but you come right back. Um, how did you determine which ones, you were going to kind of go into and which ones you maybe wouldn't. Yeah. We put a lot of time and thought into that, how we would, and we, you know, storyboarding it out and a lot of it was planned, but a lot of it was just kind of came to be, I never intended to have anything in here about the vendors, but then when we started getting outreached to by vendors and we interviewed them, we, we thought, well, we got to get this in here somehow. And just to take a step back, our approach from the beginning was we didn't want to tell like the blow by blow story of the 1990 season. Like this happened in May, this happened in June, the A's came again in August. You know, we, we wanted to use that thread of 1990 and tell the story of 1990 and have some of that in there. But what we really wanted to capture more than anything was the feel of Comiskey Park. More important than the facts or the stats or the wins and the losses, it was, you know, what was it like to be at Comiskey Park as a player? as a vendor, as the organist, as a, as a security person, as a GM, assistant GM like Dan Evans. We really wanted to capture that because as a kid going to games, especially at 15, I was enamored with all of that stuff. <laughs> so going back to your question about the flow, you know, we really thought a lot about like how, how deeply can we dip into these sort of side plots and then come back to 1990. And we thought that like it really needed to 
those segments had to flow in and out of each other and kind of make sense. And so, you know, when, when, after the first Oakland game that we profile, we get, you know, there's the na na hey hey, and that takes us into Nancy Faust. And then we used Nancy Faust as sort of the protagonist of telling the story of 1977 and 1972, which were huge years for the Sox, Dick Allen 72 and the Southside Hitman 1977. So kind of Nancy Faust takes you through that, that whole thread. And then with the the vendor stuff, that kind of hung out on its own. Uh, but it did really lend itself well to kind of just sit, talking about how unruly Comiskey Park was. And it c- kind of allowed us to talk about disco demolition. And then the beer theme took us into the, you know, the Andy Frayne ushers having a beer with Carlton Fisk. That takes us into Carlton Fisk. So we, we thought a lot about that. Um, and, and the other part is, you know, 1983, we did a little bit, you know, Dan Evans talks about how that 90 team grabbed him more than any other season except 1983. Then we go into 1983, and 1983, um, you know, everybody talks about the chemistry and how important that closeness in the clubhouse, and that that pulls its way into 1990 and how they really built that team, thinking not just about skills, but also thinking about chemistry and what are guys like? Are they good leaders? Are they good teammates? And those learnings from 83 pulled into 1990 and those draft picks they made. Um, and the way they built that team with Thomas and Ventura and all of them. So, yeah, we we definitely, um, you know, it was definitely daunting. To, and and there was a few, it was kind of like a puzzle at times. It felt like, how are we going to tell this part of the story and that part of the story and, and keep it flowing? And uh, it's nice to hear that people kind of, they they uh, kind of went along for the ride. It kind of rode the wave and it flows it flows well enough that people follow it. Yeah, I mean, look, kudos because this is the, that's an, that, that answer is is uh, uh, exhibits a, a bit of sophistication, frankly. That, uh, yeah, how do you how do you how do you prevent going down these rabbit holes, right? Uh, you know, there is no, there, the, you know, you could you there's so many different levers you could pull. You could pull the Harry Carey thing. You could pull the Sports Vision thing. You could pull, you know, yeah. like other things that happened there, like Chicago Sting and and you know the police in 1983, yeah. a concert that I was actually at, even though I didn't. Nice. Grow up. Um, but but you didn't, and but but it all flows very very nicely, and it does. Con- the connective tissue is is on the vendor's side. Was there? A, it looks like there was actually another film that you stumbled into that got you some extra footage of vendors back uh, back in the day. The oh sound yeah, Mark Blue? Reiner. Yeah, I I stumbled onto that footage of just doing a YouTube search, and I just thought it was so curious. You know, it was obviously like a fun movie that these vendors made in the nineteen think I think it was nineteen seventy eight or seventy nine that they did it. But Mark Reiner brought his uh, like Super Eight video camera and and to Comiskey Park, and they filmed all this footage of of working there and interviewing the different vendors, and and that was uh, awesome. And I remember looking at that, and then. And then, you know, down the road, actually got in touch with Mark Reiner. And he and he told me that this is his footage. This is his movie that, that he made uh, that he's really, really proud of. And it, and it captured that time of him vending with all of these other um, all these other people and just how they were a family and how they loved um, to compete for who could sell the most loads. And they would go out for Italian beef after after the game and pizza. And they were just a big family. And. And then we had this footage too to go with it. it. It just really was awesome. And yeah, Mark Reiner is the guy. He talked. He's the guy who did that video, "The Sound of Money." And he, um, and, and you know, at Disco Demolition, he was selling beer at second base, which is like probably my favorite part of the whole documentary that he did. That um, actually went out of the field and kept selling beer. Just cracks me up and speaks to just how crazy that time was. Um, but yeah, I, that that came about that way, and it, it was really great. Tell me about the 1990 season generally, because you're kind of tipping your hat here to, uh, or tipping your hand, I should say, to a theme that we've kind of discovered after almost seven years of doing this show. Um, Lord knows the, uh, the the origination of this idea for me started as a teenage fan of uh, the New York Cosmos, the arch enemy of, of aforementioned Chicago Sting and the old North American Soccer League. Um, and the impression you know, whether whether that's baseball or football, whatever kids, especially especially males, not exclusively per se. But, you know, there's that sort of that uh, that that imprint between, I don't know, eight and 15 or so, you know, where sports, if you're inclined towards sports, um, the imprint sort of gets burned in there. And the teams that you're following or the sports that you're playing or, 
uh, interested in it stuff. It just seems to kind of, I don't know, burn a little bit more uh, permanently in one's imprint. It sounds like that was the case for you. I guess 1990, what, you're 15. I'm guessing you were a Sox fan before that, though, no? Or or what? I was. I was a big baseball fan pretty much my entire life. And I grew up with my dad being a huge White Sox fan. He would always tell us about the teams in the 50s and Nellie Fox and Louis Aparicio. And I would say like the golden age of being a baseball fan is always like between fourth grade and maybe freshman year of high school, because it's, it's that time where you, you go to the game, not just to enjoy the game, but you go to the game and you envision yourself being on the field in the future. And it's a very realistic dream. Right. And I think almost anybody who played, I played baseball and in as a little leaguer and in high school and I played in college too. And, you know, when you're at that age, especially like, you know, fourth grade to freshman year of high school, you still very much believe in that dream. And you're watching the game in a different way, I think, because as a kid, I'm watching Scotty Fletcher and Ozzie Guillen, and I'm watching them really closely. You know, how do they get in the ready position? You know, how do they back each other up? Are they talking to each other? You know, wh- what's their approach to, you know, doing a double cut and stuff like so you're just really paying attention as a fan and it just grabs you and it's it's really just the experience is so much more intense because that dream is so real and that was kind of the last year of that for me you know being um just going into high school and high school you know just different pressures and puberty and all that so 15 was sort of like that last really magical year and it just you know that 1990 team it's a bunch of young players you know, I'm 15 and, and there's guys out there who are six years older than me um, that, that are on the field and they weren't supposed to be good. They were huge underdogs and they were, you know, they had some new guys coming up, but you didn't think they were going to really compete yet. And then they're taking on the Oakland A's. And at that time, the Oakland A's were Darth Vader of baseball. They just were the best, you know, that they'd been into the World Series two years in a row. The Sox had no business competing, and here they were in a pennant race all summer. It just made for a, an awesome, awesome year that so memorable. You know, most Sox fans my age feel the same way if, if they, you know, were fans at that time. It was a hell of a season because they were in second place the vast majority of it. They uh, they bobbed up a couple of couple of couple of weeks there in number one position and they kind of just hung in number two and they kind of just sort of faded and, you know, came with three, four, five, six games back. And, you know, by the time the, um, the last game, um, the last games rolled around in early October, the last home game on September 30th, uh, they were pretty much, I think they were eliminated a couple of weeks out of the season. Right. That's right. Yeah. They, they, you know, I feel like they fought really hard through August and then they had that really just demoralizing game against the angels uh, that's in the documentary in part three where Lee Stevens hits the home run against Big Pen. And, and that just kind of started a little bit of a downfall there. And, you know, that A's team was just a runaway train. So they stuck with them, I would say, through late August. And then they just the A's started to get out of reach. And it is too bad there wasn't a wild card because I do think that the White Sox would have been a formidable playoff team because their bullpen was just so good. And they played great defense. It seemed that the last number of years at Comiskey, uh, and this is more from an outsider's perspective, uh, was almost like a shot in the arm for the uh, for the team, the club, attendance, and and you know, in many respects, especially in modern day, uh, the White Sox have um, uh, been a perennial number two to the Cubs, just in terms of mind share and seemingly media coverage. I think the reality on the ground is is a bit different, mm-hmm. um, but there is sort of this. Uh, I don't know, arrogance of Cub fans. And I, again, having married into a family of them, <clears throat> I speak from experience, right? But um, it does seem, though, that uh, White Sox fandom uh, and attendance and, and interest and, and media coverage and all that stuff does tend, maybe it's different different now. A lot of things are different now in Major League Baseball. But it does seem to kind of ebb and flow, right? I mean, obviously, the White Sox <laughs> got a world championship a little sooner than the Cubs did, Uh uh, in this modern era and stuff. And obviously it became a, a White Sox town, but it does seem to kind of be more, um, I want to say hit or miss, but it clearly was the benefit to the benefit. I think um, maybe it was the drama around maybe threatening to relocate to Tampa Bay uh, earlier uh, that in the decade. And frankly, you know, a competitive team and this promise of a new ballpark finally 
uh, that kind of got people to say, hey, you know what, we should get in our last respects. And oh, by the way, this seems to be a pretty competitive team to boot here to watch. Yeah, I think that's all right. I think you're spot on. It is a Cubs town. The And the Cubs are a national team. There's Cubs fans everywhere. And a lot of that is because of WGN. A lot of it's because of the lovable losers. And a big chunk of it is because of Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field is a you know a global destination for baseball. Anybody who comes to Chicago, they got to stop by Wrigley Field, even if they're not a baseball fan, because they've heard so much about the rooftops and, and the, the whole experience. And the White Sox, they're not. They're not a, you know, we have a really hardcore, strong fan base. And the city will get behind the White Sox if we're playing well. But it's not like the Cubs, where the Cubs are just sort of, you know, the, Chica- the Chicago's team. And in a lot of ways, a lot of people across the country's team. So if you look at that Sox team, though, you know, to your question, like 87, 88, and 89 were dismal years at Comiskey Park. You know, we thought the team was going to impossibly move. Um, there was all the politics involved with building the new stadium. I don't think the team won, you know, the team was winning in the high 60s for games. And there wasn't a whole lot to be excited about beyond Ozzie Guillen and Carlton Fisk on those teams and Harold Baines while he was here. And that's part of the reason, like 1990 came about, we got this new stadium being built on the horizon, this old, unbelievably historic, legendary ballpark in its last season, and these young players who are coming into their own. So it really created momentum. And in the early 90s, say like 1990 through 1994, 95, up until the strike, it became a Sox town in a lot of ways. The, the Sox were the team and the Cubs, the Cubs really were second to that they didn't compete well they didn't have a really strong team and it was really all about the white Sox. 1990 was the launching the launching point for that really really nice run the Sox had in the 90s all right what's this game time fantastic hey buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with the GameTime app. And I will tell you, the GameTime app has gotten me out of a couple of jams on more than a few occasions. I'll tell you, a couple of weeks back, I travel fairly often for work. I was stuck in New York. I had uh, dinner plans fall through uh, during a business trip. I was leaving the next morning. Uh, but had some time on my hands. And what's a sports guy like me to do? Well, scouring around to see if there are any events going on. And sure enough, the Knicks were playing the Nets at home at the world's most famous arena. So about an hour before the game, I fired up the Game Time app and uh, found a decently priced ticket. I won't tell you what <laughs> the people around me paid for their ticket, but it was, certainly wasn't nearly as expensive as theirs. And I got to watch the Knicks uh, uh, in a rare uh, moment of uh uh, amazingness uh, kick the snot out of the nets uh, but that's uh, game time is uh, the place uh, to get your last minute tickets uh, they've got a tremendous set of deals flash deals they call them uh, and last minute tickets uh, they're easy to find and buy uh, for just about every kind of event you want sports and entertainment and music that kind of stuff the images the seat views are just perfect they're great that's that's always like the the big uh, conundrum when you're looking at a uh, uh, a seating chart. You have no idea where you're going to be, uh, what your view is going to be like. And Game Time's got uh, probably the best imagery that I've seen of any of the uh, ticket sites out there. And of course, they've got a lowest price guarantee, including event cancellation protection. So you know you're going to be covered in case. As a matter of fact, that the Game Time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price. And if you find tickets in the same section uh, and row for less, Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. Uh, don't believe me? Try it for yourself. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and then on us, use the code GOODSEATS for $20 off of your first purchase. Again, that's the Game Time app. And uh, it's also, uh, you can check them also out at gametime.co. Uh, but get the app, download the app now, create an account, and use the code GOODSEATS for 20 bucks off your first purchase. Terms apply for sure. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. It's game time. Thank you, game time, for your sponsorship of this week's episode. And now, back to our conversation.
What about Comiskey Park generally, not just 1990, but you as a kid growing up and maybe as an adult fan afterwards? I presume you still went to games even in the new park. Um, what what, uh, what personally do you sort of remember, miss, and frankly, don't miss uh, about the park, either through personal experience or maybe even the lore that you learned uh, being a fan as a kid and, and then some? There's so much that I am nostalgic about for that old ballpark. I really miss the uh, the the upper decks the way they were at the old ballpark. So uh, I loved how in the outfield there was upper decks in the outfield and then the roof. So you would, you know, players, they didn't just hit home runs at old Comiskey. You had a lower deck shot, which was just a normal home run. You had an upper deck home run, which that would be your, you know, your Greg Lazinski's and your Ron Kittles would hit it in the upper deck. And then you have your rooftop shots where, you know, Kittle and Lazinski might hit one or two in their careers. And it was like, it was, you know, you were calling your friends and your family if there's an upper deck shot. So it made home runs so much more than just a home run. It was like all these different places you can hit it. And then if you sit up there, you know, if you sit in the front row of the upper deck in left field, that was a vantage point that was so neat that really no baseball park has anymore. Tiger Stadium had it. Uh, but Comiskey, you know, you had these upper deck outfield seats that were right on top of the field. You had upper deck seats behind home plate that were right on top of the field. And, you know, Ozzy Guillen talks about it, many others in the documentary. It, it, the, the stadium, it just, that park got so loud. And the players felt like the fans were on, practically on the field. And the fans just felt like they were so part of the action. And I think, you know, baseball was so popular back then. And I think parks like that help make it popular because the game was so immediate, like right in front of you. And um, you could kind of feel that history in the ballpark. And um, it was just, it was awesome. And, it, you know, one of the things that I hope is, you know, there's this whole retro um, thing that's been going on for the last 25, 30 years in ballpark design. But I think what they continually miss is, you know, they have these levels and upon levels of skybox seats that pushes that upper deck way, way up into the stratosphere. And I'd love to see, you know, parks be built. And maybe this is just, you know, a pipe dream, but build parks with lower, you know, upper decks that are like old Comiskey and they're right on the field and, you know, find a way to incorporate modern day amenities by putting, you know, the suites in different areas. I think you could get creative with, you know, in the, you know, in the picnic area type areas for suites or maybe above that upper deck, considering, you know, I, I go to suites sometimes with work and nobody's really watching the game in a suite. You know, you're visiting with friends and you're having a good conversation and the game's in the background. So anyway, that's my soapbox on that. The the question about what don't I like about old Comiskey Park? Yeah, I mean, there were some seats that were just terrible. Like there was a lot of seats that were behind poles, like deep in the corner where the, you know, behind the foul pole. Uh, you know, there were seats that you could get at old, you know, at old Comiskey that you just, it was just brutal to sit there. But in the documentary, fans talk about this. If you had a seat like that, you did not sit there. You know, you, you found a different place to stand or watch the game. Um, you walked around, but no doubt about it. There were some very, very awful seats at the old park. And so, you know, that, that wasn't a good thing. So, but for the, by and large, I would, uh, I'd kill to go back to old Comiskey park and, and, and sit in the worst seat there and walk around. It was just such a cool place. Well, the thing that strikes me about, uh, old Comiskey is that it, it really squeezed a whole lot of life out of itself, right. Uh, through hook or by crook or inventiveness or, or, you know, a parsimonious owner and a Bill Vec, uh, you know, really yeah. kind of, I mean, one of the things you could not help, uh, uh, you couldn't miss, right. Were, um, the, it was actually when I went a couple of times, I even went to the last game on September 30th, 1990. Yeah. Uh, is you could literally see how many coats of paint were on some <laughs> of those, on some of those bars. And we're talking not one or two, right. Um, I mean, I even on the outside, I think especially uh, uh, benefited from multiple uh, uh, coats of paint. Um, I, you know, it, the reality was that, you know, by the 1980s, that park was <clears throat> a venerable would be, I guess, a charitable way of saying it. But it it was, you know, it. I think it had very much outlasted its natural life. Um, but I think that's saying something, right? I think that parts, partially that's fans. I think partially that's ownership. Um, and I think, uh, you know, especially in the latter years when the threat to move and all that stuff, sort of just willing that park into uh, extra years of life to 
um, you know, to at least go out uh, in such a buzzy way in 1990. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I, you know, I part of me thinks that if they were able to renovate Fenway Park and they were able to find a way to rent, you know, to continue with Wrigley Field, and they had to do a lot of work on both of those parks to make them playable again. Um, you know, Wrigley Field had issues with things falling down from the upper deck on the lower deck seats, and they had to put netting up, and then they had to do a lot in the offseason to get it, you know, modernized for today's baseball. But both those parks are still standing, and now they're just huge, you know, they're tourist attractions. And I think if, if they had saved Old Comiskey and done that, then that would still, you know, then people, I think Comiskey Park would be a destination like Wrigley. But y- your point's not lost on me. I think that that park was... Um, it was almost to the point where it would be impossible to save it without maybe playing an entire year in Milwaukee or something like that to, to bring it up to speed. And the new park, you know, I was, as a fan, as a kid, I was excited about the new park and, you know, and it, it, the new park was difficult to swallow when it first opened, but they've done a good job with it. It's a nice place to watch a game. There's no doubt about that, but it's interesting. Yeah. Your experience being at that last game, you know, you saw that you kind of saw what the park looked like and how, how old were you? If you don't mind my asking, were, were you a kid then, or were you an adult? Cause you might've had a more realistic, you know, uh, view of, of the stat, the state of things when you went compared to my younger brain. So in 1983, I was here for a summer program at Northwestern. I was a, okay. a, a school as a, a cherub. It's a high school sort of journalistic program. Um, and that's when I went to the um, police synchronicity tour with the ministry and flock all of right. seagulls, the fix and <laughs> yeah. all that. Um, and then uh, I came back as a uh, as a news producer in 1990 for CBS. Uh, that's kind of how I... Uh, uh, talk my way into getting to the into the last game. So I was so a couple of years out of college at that point. So I yeah. think I had kind of a, a a late high school to early adulthood kind of lens on it. Uh, certainly, you know, was aware of the whole disco demolition thing and stuff. So I, I can't really speak to I'm not sure I have the same hagiography, perhaps, as you might be able yeah. to legitimately apply here. What did you think of the old, what did you think of Comiskey though? Like when you went to that last game in 1990, like uh, what were your thoughts on the park as, as you were there? Uh, I didn't have the chance to go to the last game. So what was that like? Oh, geez, here I am talking to the expert and I was the, I, <laughs> yeah, one yeah. time I went that season. Um, I, you know, on the outside, it was kind of like, Ooh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, not very striking on the outside, right? It looks like kind of yeah. a, a, a slabbed, uh, a white, very white, almost I want to say prison-like, but certainly like a drab kind of uh, uh, nothing special kind of outside look to the um, to the building and the parking lots and all that stuff. I, I think some of that's just, you know, inevitable. It's just, you know, it's a, there's no need to kind of keep keep things uh, uh, too much further because it's not going to be here next year after all. And the park, of course, had been largely, you know, the footprint was very well established. I mean, literally, it's like I. The thing that struck me was how close the new park was in feet yeah. <laughs> to the park when you when, when you were going to put them back together again. I, I I found that astounding, frankly, that it would be that closely closely aligned. Um, but once inside, it did it felt um, it felt older for sure, but it felt more. Um, I don't know. They say Wrigley is the friendly confines. It felt uh, very uh, um, cozy and clubby, and um, it wasn't perfect it wasn't uh, the food you i mean the food obviously is, has legendarily been uh lauded it, uh, you know but it was probably one of the parks for many years that had i don't know the best variety of, of ballpark food and ethnicities and all that kind of stuff that was one of the first things i kind of alighted to was that i wanted to take in that because this was gonna be the very last game that you could ever experience that and it's happened to be on my first one um yeah but yeah, the amenities, I, I, the amenities didn't strike me, but I guess I didn't really give that much thought because I knew this was the ballpark's last game. I was able to go up onto the roof. Um, I, I don't think I was given actual permission to, to do so, but I did so. Um, and yeah, you could see things were kind of, you know, a little tattered and a little, you know, uh, but it it felt like a ballpark. It really did. Um, yeah. And if I could I could see and I could feel that uh, this place uh, was more than just its structure, but um, depending on the the vibe and the uh, the tone of the people in, inside the park and how things were going, uh, it could really be something special if those planets aligned. 
Yeah, definitely. When they were playing well and they, and there was a, you know, a, a good crowd there, like in 1990 for a lot of that season, <clears throat> it was just such an electricity in that, in that stadium. And as you say, in that ballpark. And I think, you know, everything that you're saying, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. We, uh, my brother, Mike and I went to Mike and I worked together on this, <clears throat> excuse me. We went to one of the best games that, you know, we've ever been to together was in 1990. I think it was July 28th, 1990 against the Brewers. And that was a game, you know, back and forth game, went to the bottom of the ninth and Ozzie hit a ground ball up the middle to win the game. And just that was, you know, just such a memorable experience just because of how close the stands were to the field and how loud the park was and just how it was a hot day. You know, it just felt like the way baseball should be. Um, and of course, you know, you got the organ throughout the game and, you know, Nancy Faust is a big influence on, on this whole documentary with the sounds. And, um, you know, I just, you know, clearly I have a real, uh, affinity for ballparks and, uh, I like new ballparks too, but I love the design of the old ballparks because I love the way I love the history, but I just, I love the design of, making the the way and you see this at Wrigley and Fenway they're interesting they're quirky the the fans are closer to the action it's just I, you know it's it's just something that I really enjoy and uh that old Comiskey Park they're really the closest thing to it was Tiger Stadium and I went to a few games in 1999 at Tiger Stadium and it was very it really brought back the the feels of Comiskey because the the way it was um, you know, there was upper decks all around the park, basically, except center field, just like Comiskey Park. Uh, the one thing that I didn't get to experience, but uh, I, I'm curious about, I'm sure you, maybe you did, were those, um, well, I guess I guess in the latter years, it was called Bullpen 1 and Bullpen 2. Uh, they were kind of like these, uh, I guess, stadium clubs, but they were buried in the out- actual outfield. You could actually look through the outfield wall and see the game. It was at field <laughs> level in the outfield. Yeah, it's really neat. Like, so they had the picnic area and left. And that was like any fan could go down there and just hang out. That, that's part of like the whole, you know, you got a bad seat, go down to the picnic area, sit there, look through this, you know, the field, the catwalks that went from the upper decks to behind the, the, um, the scoreboard. But yeah, those, those bullpen, uh, suites were really neat and they had them in right field too uh that video the behind the scenes video i was telling you about that andy franosher john brudnick had he you know went into some of those it's not in the documentary but i had never been in them so it was cool to see that video where you know they look like there's like private parties that were in these uh suites inside the walls at old comiskey out there in right field so um yeah they just uh a lot of that i think was bill vec trying to figure out new interesting ways to keep fans engaged and make a little bit more money and so it just you know it was very cool the way they they did some things that were pretty innovative at that time for you know creating different vantage points to watch the game yeah i i i guess the only way i could sort of describe comiskey from again an outsider's perspective is it almost felt like it was um uh, a resourceful ballpark i mean uh, the people the owners and the fans and the people that work there, uh, the players, I think there was just a resourcefulness, like the whole artificial infield for 10 years during the late 60s, early 70s, and with an outfield yeah. that was still actually grass. Um, the the, uh, the movement, I guess, of the fences uh, uh, or the or the, the um, home plate and, and some of the, uh, the lines sort of inward, I think, to make the, the park a little bit smaller so that that it could be a better hitting ballpark. I, they just seem to be like almost like this park was sort of built for, you know, do it yourself innovation. Um, yeah. Not for a lot of dough per se, not a lot of investment per se, but but literally making good out of what you had. Totally, it, you know that exploding scoreboard and different iterations of that, um, and the you know the fireworks they would blow off from right behind the stadium that were just like insanely loud to you know, putting Nancy Faust, you know, not in a booth anywhere. Nope. Just right in the middle of the crowd in the upper deck. I mean, she had her little booth area, but you know, fans could just walk up to her and request a song. They put a shower in center field. That was like a total makeshift shower. <laughs> if you see video of it, it's funny. It's just like a shower. You're just in the middle of, you know, the bleachers in center field. <clears throat> and I think that was a neat thing, just like all these different iterations that were, you know, and a lot of times whenever they rolled something like that out, it was, 
it was, uh, you know, it was new and it was different and it was unique, but it wasn't corporate, you know, it wasn't glossy. It was more of a tier, you know, I think you hit it on, on the nail. It's a, it was more a DIY kind of a feel. Yeah. It was almost like a, a carnival or maybe even a little bit of a circus sometimes. And I know Bill Vec clearly was sort of that and showman, yeah, another reason totally. kind of the ballpark, but, but even in 1990, I think it was, there was definitely some uh, ball cap tips to, I think that heritage. I think so. One of the things, one of the stories that I, I must have gotten this part of the story. I talked to a, a security, <clears throat> a security person, and he was telling me different stories about being security at at Comiskey Park, and just some really funny stories. And and one of them was it just kind of goes to like the just the kind of loosey goosey way of operating. Then he was saying that you know he was working security, and they were blowing, you know, they were going to do a fireworks show at the end of the day and he had, he had never gone to where they blew off fireworks which i think was like right at armor square park behind the stadium is where they kind of set up where they would blow them off and he went back there uh, just to see how they do it and he said like all those guys were drinking beers they're <laughs> just like you know drinking miller lights and blowing off fireworks uh for the fireworks show and he was like is this really like is this really how we do this it's like a party um so yeah i mean that kind of stuff just it, it just kind of cracks me up just the, the the way just it was a little bit more loose um you know funny story too is the same security guard was telling me how you know players weren't really supposed to be eating during the game you know the chicken willie would make food they'd go into the um the clubhouse and you know they might get you know a hot dog or something in the middle of the game but every once in a while they would sneak in food they'd order it out like during a rain delay and you know he was just talking about how players would you know sneak back to the bullpen and they would uh you know take turns going into a small room and eating tacos and things that they had ordered out so just, just funny stuff like that that you don't realize is going on um but you know these are just human beings trying to make it through a 162 game schedule and uh, a lot of funny stuff happens and i, I love those kind of little you know backstories all right, two little qu- last questions on sort of the um, uh, the f- the formatics of, of of making this film. How did you determine the people that you uh, interviewed for this, including the great Peter Wilt, the original uh, general manager of the Chicago Fire MLS team, who oh, yeah. was ceremoniously uh, removed from his duties uh, about fifteen years ago, and the team has sucked ever since. Yeah, uh, that's, how, that's how good Peter was, by the way, um, and. Uh, what, what, what stuff didn't make it that you really would have liked to have seen in there that didn't uh, make the final rev? Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that we'll, we'll put together. Like, a I think we're going to release some extra innings kind of thing, um, over the summer of, of video or stories that we got that didn't make it in. Peter Will is awesome. He he's, he was a fan of what we were doing, or, you know, I would say not necessarily maybe fans, not the right word, but just a encourager. Uh, and supporter and he was one of the first people to agree to do video and he did video before we started doing zoom or Streamyard. he did you know we asked him to send us video which he did and he had a lot of great personal stories about um, going to the ballpark about the last game about going to see dick allen and and the vendors and and some of it is uh in the in that section about nancy faust but there's other great stuff that we didn't get in there that we wish we could. It's just like the, you know, we wanted to keep it going in the narrative flow. And so there were some things that we just couldn't get in there. <clears throat> um, there but yeah, there's some, there's some parts that, uh, you know, Tom Scher, a longtime sportscaster uh, in Chicago, he, he, wor- he worked with us as an editor. So he just, he reviewed everything and gave us um, notes on where to cut and, you know, different things to do from an editing perspective. And, and he helped us cut some things, you know, kill your babies, if you will, like things that we wanted to keep in, but uh, I think he very wisely said, "No, this is this is um, hampering the flow." One thing I, I you know, one asked the 1983 season. Dan Evans had a really cool story about how they, as a team, really got close. In particular, when they were um, in Newark and their flight got canceled, and the whole team slept in the airport. And he said that, you know, and this is 1983, and he said that it's a really a test of a team when you're having travel challenges, how they react. And, you know, you know, you can kind of see if, if this is going to be a team that's tight and pulls together or not based on, you know, travel delays and how they handle it. <clears throat> and he said, like, the team had a blast. Like, they slept on the floor of the, the airport. They had a great time. They were joking around. Um, they flew to Chicago the next morning and they, like, rocked the next day on no sleep. 
Um, and that's just the way that team was. So I, I loved that story. Um, but just, you know, we interviewed, we talked to everybody for, you know, at least 40 minutes and a lot of people an hour, an hour and a half. So, you know, we talked with Kenny McReynolds about um, roller derby at Comiskey Park. You know, there's a lot of stuff, really interesting aspects of the park that, you know, we couldn't figure out quite how to work it in and keep the flow. Uh, but some really, really cool stories like that, that, um, you know, we hope to get out there to get out there at some point because it's really good stuff. Like I'll give you one other one is um, Scott Radinsky, you know, this punk rock, you know, kid at the time, 20 years old, he, you know, had only pitched in single a and the pitching coach, Sammy Ellis, you know, one day, you know, it's getting close to where they were going to break camp and Radinsky's not sure, you know, when he's going to be sent down basically to double a and Sammy Ellis just basically said, Hey, Scott, do you have a tie? <laughs> and Radinsky said, no. And Samuel said, well, you better get one. And so that's how he found out he made the team. He rode his bike into downtown Sarasota. He bought a tie and it's a tie he wore every single day, you know, on the road when guys used to wear a tie on the road. So there's a lot of little stories like that, that, you know, and I asked, I also asked a lot of the pitchers and hitters, like what was their approach to pitching? And there's some of that from McDowell in there about, you know, in out, keeping guys off balance, pitching to contact, not wanting hitters to swing and miss, <clears throat> but there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, that is just their approach to pitching in the, in 1990 that I really was, um, enamored with and we didn't get it all in there, but you know, some really cool stories about how they would attack hitters. Well, I tell you, I, I really didn't want it to end it, it didn't seem like it was going on forever by any stretch. It felt like there was, it just, it just felt very comfortable to watch and just interesting. And you could clearly tell just about every subject to a person uh had real uh earnest uh, memories and uh, reminiscences about that park that uh, the team that that largely inhabited that park uh and all that came with it and i think you captured it very very well uh thank you thank you very much um that that's great it's great to hear that it's what we were going for so it's it's great to hear that you know that that you responded that way to the content all right now that you're a professional film <laughs> documentarian what what's your next are you going to do anything else i mean besides perhaps some of the extra stuff that might uh make for further fodder for this particular story do you do you have the itch to do this for uh, another topic another thing maybe some more uh, white Sox stuff or is this kind of a one and done and you're on to your other exploits in your life definitely want to do something else uh there's some momentum here uh and i think because we have, you know, when we were trying to get people for this, we had no resume. We couldn't say, hey, we did this project. And so would you like to do this project? So it was it was tough to get people to agree, uh, even with COVID and with StreamYard. Uh, you know, we didn't even get all the interviews we hoped to get. There's a lot of players we tried for that we didn't get. Maybe now that we have this, we'll have a little better chance on the next one of, <clears throat> of just getting a, a response and, and talking to more more people, although, you know, not to say we're not really happy with everybody who came to the table for this. So yeah, I, you know, thinking of a few different uh, possibilities or routes we could go, baseball is the first love and uh, that's really where my heart is and my brother Mike too. We're, you know, we're huge baseball fans, but one of the idea that we've toyed with is the Chicago stadium and doing something on, um, you know, like the last stadium type of a project because you have the Bulls, you have the Hawks, you have the Chicago Sting, you have all the, you know, you have so much history at that place. And that place was super unique too. <clears throat> and I've had some people already reach out and tell me they have video of the concourse and all of that at the stadium. So um, leaning hard on the stadium right now, but have it decided. Um, part of me wants to do some more baseball, but uh, the stadium would be really fun to do. All right. Well, there you have it. And uh, the film is out there now in the wild on YouTube. You can find it. Uh, you can either search for Last Comiskey or the actual handle on YouTube is at Last Comiskey 1990. It is uh, three parts. Uh, they're all each about uh, 30 minutes or so. Uh, and uh, you will absolutely find it uh, fascinating, even if uh, you're not uh, a White Sox fan or you didn't grow up in Chicago and stuff. Uh, it is so well done. And again, even more so, more amazing in the fact that uh, this is Matt's first 
ever endeavor into the realm of uh, documentary filmmaking, you will be uh, uh, as surprised and delighted as I was for sure. Again, on YouTube, you'll find it at Last Comiskey 1990. Uh, on Twitter, you can follow Matt uh, at Last Comiskey. And uh, once again, uh, the uh, benefit uh, for the uh, Epilepsy Surgery Alliance uh, will occur on Saturday, May 13th, if you happen to be in the Chicago area on the south side at the uh, Promontory. Finally, I figured out how to say it correctly down in uh, Hyde Park, uh, I think at 11 a.m. Uh, doors open. I think it maybe begins at noon, uh, but um, Nancy Faust, the White Sox organist, will be there. Don Paul, uh, Wayne Edwards, two White Sox pitchers uh, uh, of, of Lore and Your will be there. Tom uh, Scher, a longtime Chicago sportscaster and uh, uh, hidden hand uh, in uh, some of uh, this stuff. And Matt Flesh, of course, uh, the producer, director of the film, will all be there. 25 bucks at the door or uh, ahead of time. Go to epilepsysurgeryalliance.org to figure out how to get tickets. And um, hopefully you'll see me there uh, as as well. And 100% of all those proceeds, of course, go to uh, that charity. And um, we thank Matt for bringing this film and that opportunity to us. And uh, we loved it. You will as well. Hopefully you will also love our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up all of our various episodes, 300 plus now. Uh, and of course, the best way to uh, make sure that you get every single last episode uh, or any future ones is to uh, subscribe or follow us wherever you get podcasts. We are available wherever you can find them, for God's sakes. Uh, and uh, what else? You can send us email. Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, and also, of course, please follow us on social media. You will find us on Twitter at goodseatsstill. You will find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you also find us on Facebook. There's a little page devoted to us there as well. Our thanks, of course, as always, to the great Jerry Payne, uh, Atlanta Braves fan that he is, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. And uh, we thank you, of course, for listening. And uh, stay tuned for uh, more fun, uh, frivolity, and uh, shenanigans next week. God willing, take care of yourselves, and uh, we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.